0: Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day that you've given us in your Son, Christ Jesus, who is gathering the nations nations to himself, Lord, that you are building up a temple of living stones of all the nations, a city on a hill for all people to see, to shine, Lord. Help us to discover these truths as we prepare to enter into worship, so you can energize us, so you can speak word in a word of life into our lives through the gospel preached and tasted at the table, Lord. But bless this time of Sunday school that we're going to have as we go into your word and learn from it and apply it in our lives. Be with us in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Children can go to their Sunday schools. All right. So last week. We began to enter into the trial of man in Genesis 3, and we're going to park there for a while, but we're going to examine the text with other texts in mind as well as we uncover what's going on in that chapter. So we've seen so far that man is made in God's image, and he is to work, okay? He is to work following God in the manner that God has worked, okay? You begin a work, you complete the work you assess it as good, and you enter into Sabbath rest. So man, he begins his work. How does he begin it? He's naming the animals, right? And ultimately, he names the wife or the woman, right? We discussed that word play in Hebrew with ish Isha, that from the man comes the woman as his helper. But now he must complete his work, doing his function as a temple guard he's guarding the sanctuary garden from the defiler the evil one we also discussed some of the background of the symbol of the serpent in the ancient near east and also we discussed what it means to be crafty according to the rest of scripture right we said we we saw that it is being clever it is it's just being crafty but it's also tied to deceiving a lot of times when we use our cleverness is for the purpose of deception and we're going to see that with the enemy today so today we're going to focus on the nature of the trial itself we're going to go through Satan's plan of attack and i'm going to pick up right where we left off when i said that satan was a criminal defense lawyer okay i'm going to i'm going to edit that and say corrupt criminal defense lawyer <laughs> in response to our brothers and sisters who are lawyers but It is very much in this sense of being a lawyer. Now, if you could turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Pastor Phil pointed out this passage. And it really contains what we've discussed about serpent wisdom expressed in the function of a lawyer. Okay? We're going to go through Luke chapter 10 verses 25 through 37. We're going to go briefly over it. But I want you to pick up the serpent wisdom. But he, this is an important detail, the lawyer, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, notice the tone of the question. Who is my neighbor? I know that you're saying that, okay, I have to love God and I have to love neighbor. But there's a technical context where my neighbor is him who lives next to me. Is he my neighbor or is everybody who is external to me my neighbor? What's the spirit? What's the what's the intention in this question? And it's clearly, like the text says, to justify oneself. And seeing and drawing out, carving out how you can cleverly parse the law to be in compliance with it, while at the same time, not being in compliance with it. How can I be right while my heart is so distant? From what it's actually intending to communicate. Right? So look at Jesus' response. And Jesus replied, he doesn't, he understands what's going on here. He identifies the serpent wisdom that's coming from this man. And he starts to reply, not directly, but with a story. A man going down from Jerusalem to, Jer- to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who was stripped of him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... Let me pause there for a second. A Samaritan, according to the Old Testament, the land of Samaria is after the exile of the northern kingdom of Israel. Okay, by the king Assyria. They conquered them because of their idol worship and their bad kingship. The northern kingdom is stripped of the land and put in exile. And the land is then filled with all all the surrounding nations. And so they bring with them all the idol worship. All of their false gods worship into the northern kingdom of Israel. And when they start to do this false worship... God sends a judgment on them, sending them lions, and they start to tear apart the, these nations. These lions come, they're roaring, they're tearing them apart. And so the king is like, listen, the nations that have come here, they're, they don't obey the, the God's laws, the, the land of the God, the God of the land's laws, sorry. And because of that, these lions are coming and they're tearing them apart. Send a priest to teach them the ways of the law, so they might obey and they don't die. So a Levite was sent, or a priest was sent, to teach the laws of Moses. And since that period, they have been mixing the the Sinaitic covenant with false god worship. And it's been something that's been developing and developing over that time, and that land is completely defiled with false worship with godly terms, right? If we want to say it that way. So that's what Jesus is... It's not just saying some random person comes. No, there's a, there's a purpose why it's a priest, then a Levite, and then the third, the Israelite is expecting, oh, the Jews, yes, us, the people of God. No, 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 Samaritan. <laughs> and so he goes on This says, but a Samaritan, in verse 33, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And when he went to him, he bound his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own, on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care, and took care of him. And the next day, he took two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these do you think proves to to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed mercy. So he refused to say the Samaritan. Yeah, that guy who showed him mercy. Yeah, that's the one. And then look at what Jesus says. He drops the mic and says to him, You go do likewise. You go be a Samaritan. That's the greatest insult that you can give an Israelite at that time. It's saying, these are the people that have defiled the land, the land that we so desire, and you're going to use one of them to show a picture of what true mercy and compassion looks like. Jesus rightly understood. The moment he started to ask, and who is my neighbor? He heard the hiss. ...of the serpent behind him. And notice, like I said, he doesn't go directly into answering the questions. Come over here, I'm going to tell you a nice little story. That's how Jesus operates. So anyways, I think that was a good representation of why I think... Now let's go back to Genesis 3. (laughs) We're going to be traveling a lot. It's a good thing to kind of let Scripture interpret Scripture. And Satan is going to introduce himself with this first image of a corrupt criminal defense lawyer... And as we've discussed previously, his focus, okay, his focus is to exploit the delicacies of creation as weaknesses, okay? And I say weakness in a pejorative sense. He is very much looking to exploit all the soft edges, the beauty of creation, particularly in the woman, and exploit her as a weak vessel. And he's going to do it through crafty argumentation, okay? His craftiness is going to be expressed in two ways. First, he's going to distort Eve's perception. Why? To entice her to think individualistically and not covenantally. Okay? That's the first move. So, I'm going to put this radical individualism, and I'll explain it in a moment. writing. But anyways, radical individualism, greater than covenantal view of oneself. And how does he do that? He is going to put Eve and make her think that she is the center of who she is. Her identity is according to herself, not according to how God has designed for her to be. In other words, he's He's going to rip her apart from that covenantal context where you think of yourself in light of who you're responsible to and who you're responsible for. Love God and neighbor. Let's keep that mode going. Okay. I am responsible to God. And according to God, he's given me my limits and my calling and my purpose. Okay. That's covenantal living. So when I think of myself, I'm going to say, wait, how has God said that I should be living or thinking? Before I answer anything, let me think of his word first. No, Satan is going to entice her to think, well, mm, what about me? How would I design my life? So you are at the center versus covenantalism is God is at the center defining all things. Okay, that's the first move, is getting you to think apart from God for your own self-interest. And I use radical because your individual... Self is not violated in covenantal setting who you are is who you are but that does not mean that you get to do and think the way you whatever you think you is best for yourself so it's not violating your individual self it's really separating it from what God has already stated for you to live okay so individual thinking or radical individualistic thinking versus covenantal thinking so he's going to separate you from that. And when you start to think individualistically, he's going to present God as an oppressor, not like a provider. Okay, that's the second move. Get her to think for herself apart from her God, apart from her husband, apart from her call, apart from her limits. And get her to think for herself what's best for her. And once she starts to believe and think what's best for her, God ceases to be the God who provides and protects you. Why? Because according to covenantal living, God is the ultimate source of authority. That's defining who you are. That's telling you, this is your purpose. This is what you've been created to be. Don't go beyond it. This is where true freedom is within the bounds of God. Don't go beyond it. Because this is your purpose. This is how I've designed you. Right? But that quickly starts to feel like, hmm, but I want to do my own thing. And if I'm doing my own thing, with you limiting me, you're stripping me of something. See how quickly that changes? That switches to that. And once you... Once you start presenting God as an oppressor, rather than a provider, that sets the stage for the desire of making one wise for our own self. And that's, just, that's the next step. But as a clincher, to kind of like wrap this up, these two things, Satan in general, and this goes for us, even after the fall, he's looking to separate you. He's looking to isolate you. He's looking to victimize you. And he's looking to to get you into an entitled state of mind. Okay? He's looking to separate you from your covenantal understanding that you are to love God and love neighbor before you think about yourself. He's looking to isolate you from your covenant. From your covenant community. He's looking to bury you in a hole so you can make up movies in your head about how everybody's doing you wrong and nobody understands you and nobody gets your pain, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And then he's through that he's going to victimize you. He's gonna think, he's gonna make you think that you have been are being wronged by providence. That providence somehow, even though it can't be perceived as harsh from our perspective, it is always good according to scripture. It's always good, even if it's perceived as if painful. But it is for our good, for His glory, and our good. And then that ultimate step of entitlement: I deserve better. This is the mechanism that drives brothers to kill each other. You see that in Genesis four, Cain and Abel. That's where we see how sinful serpent way of thinking leads a brother to take his own brother's life. Why? Because you went from being my brother to being someone who is doing me wrong, who's oppressing me, and I am entitled to be treated better. You're stripping me and you're taking it from me. And that leads to bloodshed. So if we can... This is, this is something, I don't know if, if well you should relate to it. Every time I'm... I'm tempted to sin is completely in this mode. I'm not thinking according to God, according to his word. I'm not thinking according to the reality of God's providence being good. Whatever the state I'm in, it's always good and it's good for me and it's for his glory. I'm not thinking in that manner. And then I'm starting to think, well, nobody understands me and I deserve better. And then I leave everything because no one understands who I am. Okay, This is a very, very noticeable pattern, and that's why I wanted to kind of like make a point to see and help us examine our own lives, how we separate, how we isolate, how we victimize, and how we grow entitled for our own ways over our brothers. Okay, so now there's two main sections in Genesis 3 that Satan is going to defile. He's going to defile our relationship to God, and he's going to defile through that our relationship to our neighbor and in that and in that order okay he's going to defile a relationship to god and our neighbor so first he's going to manipulate eve's perception like we've discussed in verse 1 it says he said to the woman did god actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden notice this he emphasizes god's command as a prohibition <laughs> prohibition Over, what was that? I forgot, what was it? Provision. It's a nice little word pray <laughs> Prohibition over provision. Okay, he's stripping you of this. Just by formulating this question, he reduces God's command that it has some sort of lack of precision. He casts doubt on God's command. He defames God's motives. And he denies the clear threat of death. With just one question. He's already striking at all of these things. Think for yourself. Forget about your husband. Forget about God. Okay? Think of yourself out of covenant. Think of how you're being stripped. How you're being victimized. How you're being, you're being prohibited from access to this greater knowledge that God has. That you are entitled to. That you deserve access to. Just by this question. Did God actually say? And then Eve, in response, she's kind of taken aback. Look at verse 3. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it. She adds to the command. God did not say that. But what you start to see in her mode of thinking is, hmm. by the adding, now I'm trying to think, this is prohibited from me. Now that incites the desire. Because prohibition, you start to covet. It's, 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 it seeds this thing like, mm, God didn't say that and I couldn't touch it.
1: But I'm gonna make
0: it up because now that Satan's asking this question, hmm, he's right. When did he, why can't I touch it? Yeah. Mm. That's a Roman Catholic view. But explain a little more what, you, what you're trying to say. I know what concupiscence is. Christ never sinned. Yeah. Because there was no concupiscence and I have no concupiscence. There was no concupiscence. I'm trying to figure out the words. Okay, 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 okay. Relax, no. There is no... The, okay, concupiscence is a Roman Catholic view that sees creation as inherently having this tendency to... To be in defilement. If it's not sin, it's something corrupt. Because there's a distance between the estate of God and creation. Okay? The more the distance, the more probabilities there is for creation to kind of go wrong. So this concupiscence is kind of like this tendency to be defiled. And it... That's that that that, that part of... That would come along with the sin. Yes, that is how you say it. No, we would say creation was created good, okay? Now, the process upon which this is happening. Now, the fall happens when the command is broken. But what I'm trying to tell you is all that it leads up to, how the desires are starting to flow into the actual breaking of the command, okay? But it's there. It's in the breaking of the command, all right? In this particular setting, because it's very unique. For you and I, our desires are de- all of that. that. That is already sin. But this particular setting, this is the first parents. It is in this. It's in the breaking. Okay? But I'm just giving you the story of how it leads up to the breaking. It, do- it doesn't just go, okay, boop, let me just take. No. The desires are already mounting. Okay? All right. So verse 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of your eyes, that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So now we see the theme of the trial. He, Satan's already prepared the way, right? She's starting to think for herself. She doesn't go to her husband. She's not thinking according to God. She's adding to the commands, all right? She's already kind of like gaining a curiosity for what has been prohibited, Right? And she's already starting to think, God is not really my provider and sustainer. He's, 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 he's keeping things secret from me. Right? That's when it starts to mount. And then he, that, when he sees he's got his prey kind of like in that space, that's when he reveals the theme. How is going, how is man going to take dominion over creation and enter his rest? Okay? Will he trust the word of God? Or will he seek a knowledge that does not pertain to him? Is he going to trust the word of God? Or is he going to seek a knowledge autonomously? Okay? You will not surely die. Well, that's half truth, right? Adam and Eve didn't immediately die. While not immediately dying, the fall brought immediate exile from the garden. Okay? And that leads to spiritual death. And to physical death, all right. So he's he's already telling you know you might not technically die in the moment, but it's obviously true that afterwards we do die. Your eyes will be open. This refers to having access to unnecessary knowledge. Okay, your eyes will be open, as in you know right now you're 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 in a state of ignorance. No, you are not. God has given you sufficient knowledge. Not exhaustive knowledge. He's giving you a clear command. Don't eat from this tree because the consequences brings death. Is that exhaustive? Absolutely not. (laughs) But it doesn't need to be. Okay? So you have to trust the Lord. Those are the two roads. Are you going to trust the Lord and therefore gain access to the tree of life and enter into the Sabbath and then take dominion over the earth? Again, this is just a garden. The garden is meant to be expanded. It's the entire world. All right? So are you going to trust God's word fundamentally? Or are you going to seize what does not belong to you? Now, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a figure to exercise moral judgment. Jackie, go to 1 Kings 3.9. Now, in 1 Kings 3.9, we see a picture of Solomon, which is the, the type of a godly good king. In this trial is designed to show us what it means to be a godly, good king. Are you going to move forward trusting in the word of the Lord, or are you going to move forward seeking a knowledge that doesn't belong to you? Okay? In 1 Kings 3.9, we see this exercise of moral judgment. When you have it, you can read it. There you go. So in his call as as the king of Israel, that's his first desire in his heart to be able to discern between good and evil. But man must not going back to the garden. You cannot take it for yourself. Okay, this tree isn't isn't bad. It's not evil. The what is what is going to be a trial is how are you going to then access what God has given for you? To have. The first thing is trust. Okay? After trusting the Lord, the Lord might, might bless with wisdom to continue to develop the garden. But we don't, that's speculative, right? But if you're not going to trust the Lord, you're going to take this step into unnecessary knowledge. Now, go, again, go with me to Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. And I'm going to emphasize this concept of obey the Lord because you trust him. Okay, Joshua 6, I mean, 1, verses 6 through 7. I'm going to read it. Joshua 1, verses 6 through 7. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Okay? Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Look at this imagery of don't look to the left. Don't look to the right. This is what that's what it means. When you look to the knowledge of good and evil and say, "Ah, I like that fruit and I'm just going to take it for myself. That's looking to the left and looking to the right. No, do according to what I have commanded you. And as Joshua moves forward in this book, he does exactly what God says. He doesn't add. He doesn't subtract. And God is with him every step of the way. Literally, the word the Bible uses the treading of the feet that Joshua steps into. The Lord is with him. Why? Because he is obeying every aspect. Of the law of Moses. He's not adding. He's not looking for wisdom. That's outside of the commands. Okay? He understands that he is just a servant. And we see that Joshua is a, is a word play again. Who is Joshua in the New Testament? Jesus. That's his name. The one who is commissioned to go into the world. That's why he brings the kingdom. Okay? Okay? Because he's going into, into the world and every, every tread of his, of his, of his steps, right? Every, every, every step that he takes with the sole of his feet, he is making his enemies his friends. He is conquering his enemies by bringing the kingdom. Okay? But the kingdom not by sword, by what? By the changing of the heart. Okay? In Joshua we have the sword of the conquering of God's enemies. And in contrast, Let's go to Ecclesiastes 1, verses 16 through 18. Okay? So we have what it means to just obey God and not seek this knowledge apart from the commands of God. But we have here in Ecclesiastes, from the same king, what it means to seek wisdom. Okay? Let's read it. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom. Surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And we increase knowledge. And we, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Okay, so that's the picture of the pursuit of knowledge of good and evil is when we do it according to ourselves, when we see it and just say, hmm, I'm not going to wait upon the Lord. I'm just going to take it. Think of your sin. A lot of our sin is just not waiting upon the Lord. It's not trusting in his provision It's not seeing providence as provision, but as an oppression. And therefore, because he's commanding you to wait, because providence seems to be very slow. We are, we tend to become, how do we, how do we see in the Old Testament? Abraham starts to make up his own scheme. 75 years of age, he says, I'm going to give you a kid. And he's like, he's going to be the seed of the promise. Said, yes, Lord. What does he do afterwards? Mm, let me scheme away. <laughs> because I'm 75. And this is not illogical. Okay? This is not irrational. Abraham is thinking very rationally. He's just saying, I don't understand how this is going to work. I'm 75. You know, he promised me a land. All I'm seeing is defilement. So he takes the matter in his own hands. He does not trust the word of the Lord. It is by the will of God, not by the will of man. Okay? So, and, and he's not the only patriarch that does this. This is a repeated theme. Again, are we going to trust the Lord, or are we going to seek knowledge for ourselves? And like I said, this is a very unique setting. Now that our first parents seek the knowledge, apart from trust in the Lord, then has to come one who is like God, now that we've become like God, knowing both the knowledge and the evil, the wisdom and the sorrow. In comes the true Joshua, who has the same knowledge. But you know what? He trusts God, he trusts God at every juncture. And if we had time, I struggle. If we had time, we would look at Matthew chapter 5. Look at it in your your house. Meditate it. Maybe we will discuss it next Sunday because I don't want to drag this out. But Matthew chapter 5, before Jesus' ministry, he goes into the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy. And you think the enemy is going to do something new? No, no. He's going he's gonna to do the same thing he did to Adam. He's going to do the same thing he did to Israel. Okay? He is going to see if the Son of Man will think for himself. And he is going to see, he's going to test the Son of Man's hermeneutics of the Word of God. Okay? Those two things. He's going to see if, let me see if he's going to make bread. Just take it. Are you hungry? Just take it. He's like, mm-mm, nope. I don't live by bread but by every, every word that comes from the word of my Father. Boom, sh- cut that out. So now he starts to see. okay, let me present to you a particular scheme where you could take a passage in Scripture and apply it and do these things. And then Jesus corrects his hermeneutics and puts God first. Not something that you're going to get for your own gain while having biblical sanctions. You go back to Luke 10. Okay? We don't use the law for our own benefit. Why? Because my call is to love God first. And he squashes the enemy there. And then the third image is obviously the picture of the kingdoms. Because that's exactly what the Lord Jesus is coming to purchase. He's coming to get the nations. He's coming to establish a kingdom that is everlasting. That cannot be shaken. And he says, just take it. Why do you have to face the cross? Just come and get it. And Jesus, at that point, he's tired of the enemy and just rebukes him. Why? Because it's not just about just taking it. He can. He's God. It's doing it in the right way. Remember, manner. This is what God cares about. How are you going to take these things? Are you going to go through it honoring me at every juncture and everything that I have created? And so Jesus takes up the cross. He goes down to humiliation, and he is exalted for that humiliation. And that's how he takes it, okay? It's not just like going into a store, or stealing candy, you know? That's the way of Adam. That's the way of fallen human beings. All right, it's 1019. I'm over. Any questions? I kind of went through Matthew 5 anyways. But All right, let's pray. Lord, ah, what a wonderful, wonderful and awesome God you are. You show us what it means to be truly human. All of us are corrupt vessels. But in the Son of Man, we see what it means to be truly human. To think of you in everything that we do. To meditate on your law day and night. To love you with heart, mind, soul, and strength, and neighbor as ourselves. Help us, transform us into his image, so that our surrounding nation can see what it looks like to be truly human. Bless this time of fellowship together, in Christ's name, amen.